Welcome to the Terminal Value Podcast, where we bring you business-focused interviews with thought leaders and executive decision-makers to deliver actionable information for founders, CEOs, and finance leaders to take your organization to the next level. I'm your host, Doug Atberg, and I'm looking forward to getting the conversation started. Welcome to the Terminal Value Podcast. We have Matt Neidich with us today. He is the VP of Network Relations for Elmi, which is in the healthcare sector. Uh, but Matt and I actually worked together at Intel from 2006 through 2012. And in the pre-show, we were talking a little bit just about some of the collective blind spots and culture differences between uh, tech manufacturing and in the healthcare sectors. Uh, and so, but uh, Matt, uh, just introduce yourself real quick. Uh, don't let me talk too much. Uh, but what we're planning on talking about today is really just how to build a cohesive team uh, in the midst of uh, a lot of these company cultures and, uh, and pressures. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm working currently with LME and we serve uh, child behavioral health needs and kind of a combination of healthcare and technology. So using a lot of um, kind of modern telehealth approaches and delivering in-home care for very vulnerable population. And it's funny being in kind of both sides, both very traditional healthcare through insurance, which is where I kind of spent time between Intel and uh-huh. here, and then Intel and, uh, and, and LME, I've seen a lot of different organizations, different sizes and, and complexity, and each of them have their own unique cultures. Yeah. But one of the, one of the pieces I think you kind of hit on here, and you might remember from our time at Intel was, you know, um, that the meritocracy concept of this, you know, the, the strongest worker gets the most praise. And it's funny because so much of that in theory feels so right, right? You want to reward those performers. Yeah. But what what does it mean to perform in a place where we're all reliant on each other? That's the space yeah. that I, I, I guess I get, I, I, I get stuck sometimes is we have to build teams that allow for the strong, like the strongest outcome. Yeah. Sometimes the strongest outcome comes from building a very diverse and capable team with a lot of different types of thought, as opposed yeah. to just the strongest thinkers, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, for, for anybody listening who is uh, who is new to the tech notion of meritocracy, the, at least the way that it worked at Intel or the way that it was intended to work was that the people who were the best performers would get promoted, would get the biggest raises, would get the biggest share of the proverbial growth pie. Uh, and so, you know, the way that that was evaluated was based on the annual ratings and rankings by the committee of managers. And so in practice, what ended up happening was that a person's performance or merit was a product of other people's perceptions. And so there obviously is, as I'm sure you can tell, are situations where the way that people manage their perception uh, was more important than the objective performance because that wasn't something that could really be quantifiably measured. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I remember stories from, from being there of, you know, if you, if a manager were to put up the wrong person, right, early in their rankings during yeah. the combined committee, it would then bump everyone else on that team, if, even if they were strong performers down a rank, right? Um, oh, because, interesting. Uh, so you would have these very interesting protocols and procedures that were being followed, and the manager had to know the motivations of their peers and at the same time, they know as soon as they get through their people, they're getting kicked out of the room and the people above them are going to do the same thing about them. So the yeah. constant sort of um, looking over your shoulder creates an environment where people can't trust each other, right? And, and I think during the times where Intel was growing and there was enough growth pie for everyone to be satisfied, 
you know, that culture works, but a culture can't only work when things are going well. The culture actually is most critical when things are going in a way that's more complicated and more nuanced. And Intel had its fair share of that as a tech company with kind of boom and bust. You know, there were years that things were going great. Capacity was brought online and then uh, something would happen, either a delay in a software release for the next version of Windows, delayed when people bought computers. (laughs) then everyone's scrambling to, you know, um, to prove their, their value in a way that could be dumb costing. Um, yeah. Well, well and could, oh, go ahead. I'll go for it. Uh, well, cause one of the things that, you know, as I've been reflecting on this more as I've gotten a little older, uh, the, that this whole dynamic that we're talking about really stemmed out of uh, the Jack Welch General Electric from the 80s and 90s. It's kind of what I call the, the General Electric you know, management theory. You know, and you know, for, again, for people who are newer to the idea, what General Electric put in place was a very elaborate system of rating and ranking for each level of the management hierarchy with the idea that the best performers would be rewarded and promoted and the worst performers would be moved out of the organization so that over time, the organization would systematically get stronger. Uh, I think in practice, what's happened is that it's resulted in a whole lot of layers of middle management that spend a very significant amount of their time concerned about internal company politics, which is okay if you're in a rapidly growing sector and you have extremely high profit margins. But if either of those end up not being the case, it creates a really tricky situation. At least that's my observation. Uh, what are uh, what are your thoughts there, Matt? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the idea of, you know, um, Jack Welch specifically said, get rid of your bottom 5% every year. I think it was bottom five, bottom five might've been bottom mm-hmm. 10. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and the idea of course, of rewarding and trying to drive the most value to the top is good. But the, the idea of um, pulling out the bottom 10 is terrifying. Right. And the question of how, how that plays out, like everyone who knows that they could be in the bottom 10, who some of them are decision makers themselves. Right. Yeah. Those, those people are then figuring out how are they going, like, there's always that internal motivation of saying, how do I preserve my, my own value yeah. and, and that story together? So, I mean, that, that culture and, and, and that, that tie is exactly right. Um, an organization that's growing and that has margin and has that potential for upside, I think that competitive nature becomes less pronounced, right? So yeah. um, Intel, I think, was really interesting in the sense that it had a, um, you know, a leader that specifically was quoted saying only the paranoid survive. And so if you see the good times at Intel, yeah. they were looking usually at, you know, that as an external thing of keep an eye out on the competitive landscape, figure out, you know, what you need to do to maintain relevance in the organization, like across, but it became a very different type of rallying cry <laughs> within an organization when things were compressing and becoming more, more, more challenging. And, um, and what's, what's interesting beyond that is so many industries now have adopted this idea of meritocracy because it was something that was done by these very large and successful yeah. organizations in their heyday. But I think they all kind of start to see very similar outcomes yeah. as a result. Well, and that's, that's kind of one of the things, at least that I've, another thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is what does a now version world-class organization really look like? Because again, I think the GE paradigm is what really took hold and kind of the nineties was the heyday, nineties through two thousands. I think more and more companies are starting to realize that that's 
not the aspirational structure. But I think people don't necessarily know what is the ideal structure. I mean, you know, my personal idea of the the ideal or, uh, org structure is actually with as few layers of middle management as possible and as flat as possible and as much work as you can, either automated with systems uh, or out, you know, outsource to third-party providers. And if you have something that is uh, in short duration to handle that by a contractor or consultant so that you don't grow your internal resource footprint and create a perpetual need to manage and, uh, you know, to manage and occupy people. Uh, I don't know, l- l- let me know your thoughts. I'm kind of shooting, shooting from the hip here. Yeah, you know, I think the the strongest organizations that, that are kind of building for long term success today are looking at things like how they might um, uh, how how they might um, the the strongest organizations today are, are really looking at, uh, at at how to build teams that can re- reinforce and build around each other's strengths. Yeah. And do so in a way that's not hierarchical, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, the, uh, the people that are, um, uh, that are thinking about these organizations are realizing that, you know, each particular person has a role to play um, in their teams and in their, um, uh, and, and in their team success, but is really responsible for, you know, helping the ecosystem within the organization kind yeah. of flourish. Um, so uh, in, in an organization like ours that we're building, we're still very new, but what we're trying to do is flatten the organization as much uh-huh. as possible. So yeah. where, where I'm spending time, you know, speaking with our C-suite and guiding some of the, the thought around how we work within the healthcare landscape, I've got um, uh, times where I'm also working directly with people who are dealing with um, our contracts, with our customers and doing very specific, very detailed Uh transactional work. And the idea that communication should flow freely between one part of the organization and another, regardless of title and seniority, I think is the thing that helps an organization make better decisions because each of these people who are in the organization bring forth their own form essentially of leadership and thought expertise from the perspective that they have. And the hierarchy buries that expertise and buries that thought by not letting it shine through, by letting those conversations happen organically across all tiers in the organization. There's still a decision maker, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a higher level of respect for what we're seeing on the front lines. And it's interesting because Intel always had that sort of culture of like a lean six sigma culture. Yes, and there's this idea much so. of that, that idea of go to the gamba, go to the source, right? Yeah. Is what the, the word uh, means. And so you're supposed to follow and understand and shadow and really um, comprehend what's going on in an organization. And when you think about kind of a modern application of that, technologies and, and collaboration tools and things allow for us to do that significantly better at scale today. Um, than I think was capable back when we were still trying to figure out how to communicate with, um, uh, you know, uh, just email and in-person meetings. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're able to actually get that that conversation to move in that way and go to the source on it. So I spend mm-hmm. a significant amount of my time really, you know, with the people on those front lines who are doing the work. Then that allows me then to make a more informed decision about, you know, how can we make the work easier and more valuable at the same time, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that's the, the way that we kind of approach it. 
Well, and one of the things you said kind of reminded me of uh, our uh, uh, pre-recording conversation, because uh, you know you were talking about your own children going through, uh, you know, you know, going through speech therapy and some of the waiting that's sometimes provided, and uh, kind of made made me think about how you know one of the other things that a lot I think a lot of companies can do, and that it's really really easy to overlook is, you know, is just to make sure that you have a system and process in place to do the basic things effectively. Um, so like, for example, you know, what, like one of the things that you're talking about is think, you know, where you have a really long waiting list and a really elaborate process to do, go through to try to request an appeal or to talk to the specialist or something like that. You know, it, it seems like there should be a more effective way to, you know, to prioritize Q, uh, you know, and, uh, and triage, uh, say people, for example, for, uh, for healthcare waiting, you know, or in some of the backgrounds where I've been in, you know, in, um, say it's like, you know, in information technology, you know, how you handle things like procuring laptops or making sure that you have stable network operations, you know, this is basic stuff. Uh, and it's easy to walk past it because you're trying to, trying to put things that are flashy and cool together, uh, but get, you know, but just being able to do the basic stuff effectively, there's a surprising amount of value there. Oh, completely. You know, it's funny because I have ne I had never anticipated onboarding into an organization during a, a pandemic, right? <laughs> I joined this organization six months ago and was like, Ash, I'm going to have to get a computer. I'm going to have to do all this various stuff. I'm going to have to be set up for it. And it's amazing because this, this organization was able to take some of the best practices out of what modern technology organizations do and figure out how to do that in a decentralized way that got me the technology I needed prior to my start date. Right. That's so excellent. I showed up on the I showed up on the first day of work and my laptop had already been sent to me. It was already authorized. I had already been able to log in. My emails were coming through. Um, I was able to do everything like a few days ahead of, of my start date. And um, and it's those little things that allow then for the workforce to be able to be productive very quickly. Yeah. And you think about kind of then what does that mean for a customer? Well, in healthcare, we're delivering care within our families in the yeah. home and using virtual technologies. And there's a lot of different steps if you think about all of the stakeholders who are necessary in order to enable a family to, to receive care. You have to work with the family. Often you're working with the primary care doctor and are referring, you know, in our case, since we treat the autism community, um, we're also working with psychologists and psychiatrists in, in order to, to, to coordinate care. And then on top of that, the administrative complexities of um, hundreds of payers across the country, Medicaid plans, Medic uh, and traditional employer-based coverage, all of them have different protocols and things that the average family, especially the average family with young children, which are the families we tend to serve, have often not experienced that level of complexity in their lives, right? The, it's, yeah. um, it's so, so hugely disruptive. And when it works well, it works incredibly, but it's the basics of being able to get like the information necessary to drive a decision about how a care protocol should be handled and being able to build out the full profile and understand exactly the nuances of what needs to happen at what steps of the process that require some level of structure and discipline that a lot yeah. of organizations I think take for granted because they built it before right and they built it long ago and yeah. then they're relying on a process that maybe was built very well for the time it was built 
but the world has changed around them, right? Yeah. So we have a lot of emphasis on figuring out how do we document scalable and repeatable procedures, like standard operating procedures, yeah. managing data sets of it and like actual workflow, you know, that can be seen and observed and checked on and, and picked up by a, a person on the first day of their job and say, I get what I need to do in order to bring the experience to life that our families um, and, and that's the type of, um, space that, you know, I think when, when you say it's those table stakes things, yeah. I'm not talking about how do you make, um, something magical happen. The magic is the fact that it worked the way it was supposed to work, right? Yeah. Like people hope to get the care that they, that they're anticipating. And, and that's where we have the ability to, to really, I think, make a difference is by focusing in on those, those small things and doing them well. Well, and yeah, and I think that's that's completely uh, completely accurate. And you know, because you know, again, you know, in, in order for you know, again, again, according to uh, you know management theory, right? In order for a company to persist long term, it does need to have a sustainable, some sort of sustainable competitive advantage. But I think it's in the pursuit of enhancing that competitive advantage, it can be very easy to step over very simple basic things. Uh, just because, and I think uh, I think that this correlates in with what we're talking about uh, relative to the kind of the hierarchical evaluation process, which is you know because making a basic thing into a systematic repeatable process has enormous long-term enterprise value because that makes it very easy to have someone step in and start executing it, but it is not that impressive if you put it on an annual performance review. Yeah, or at like, least it wasn't where we were from. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Um, the idea of um, uh, I'm trying. I, I completely agree with that. the The idea of you know what what made a difference in a, in some cultures is I was able to move mountains and save ten million dollars on this thing, yeah. or four hundred million dollars over the course of X number of years, and that's how you tell the story. But in reality, if you put the right process in place that allows for the decision to be made right the first time and that that can be repeated, you've yeah. created permanent value. And, a, and like an example of that, you know, um, one of the times that we were working, I, I had to fight a pretty interesting fight at one point when I was at Intel in the, in the factory world, we had figured out how to optimize where we sent reused equipment in uh -huh. order to advantage tax uh, kind of uh, yeah. the tax differences from one country to another and there's different forms of like transfer pricing and things like that and yeah in order to build this thing you know the first time we did it we saved what would have been uh, like an estimated five hundred thousand dollars over the course of four years right that part wasn't all that interesting and no one really cared so as i put on an annual, annual performance review no one really uh, uh, no one cared at all but the piece that was also in there that no one um, you know, probably really um, recognized, I suppose, was this idea that we did it and we created the process that from then on, every time we sent a piece of equipment, it was checked to see where should it be sent based on what the tax liability would yeah. be. And so you're creating a process that then is self-reinforcing and in sense, like you said, automated, right? It's yeah. part of the standard operating procedure adds no additional cost and is now free value being created to your and yeah. those are the sorts Correct. of things where I, I like I look at the future of like machine learning and various places of healthcare and uh, other you know uh, types of automation that we are going that we're working to drive it's interesting because 
I think we do see now in kind of the more modern kind of uh, technology driven era, machine learning and, and engineering to do that type of work is of extreme value, right? It's extremely yeah. hard to find and, and it's forcing organizations to think differently about the type of behavior they want to incent within their organizations. This idea of building versus doing, right? Uh -huh. um, so that, that build is, is the thing that, that really matters even though the Herculean effort of just doing something is the thing that I think 10 years ago was probably the thing that was the most valuable thing you could do. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that, you know, that, that's definitely given, uh, given, given my, at least me, and I'm, I would uh, assume our uh, listeners too, some ideas to chew on. I mean, because I think that paradigm shift that we're really in the middle of is that there was an effort-based paradigm uh, in probably the past 20-ish years that and it's kind of going to I think what you call it a build-based paradigm, which is the idea that okay, you know, in, instead of looking at how to, you know at, at what what wonderful thing did you do that had created this great result, I think that paradigm is slowly shifting, or I'd hope it's shifting toward how did you make sure that the right thing is going to happen on its own going forward. Yeah, I think that's right, and I mean. It makes a ton of sense, right? If you think about it, what we're saying is you're building something that becomes a core asset of the health of, of, of you know a health organization, a technology organization, et cetera. Yeah. And because you're building, that's the thing that we care about, right? It's the fact that you're creating something, not just that you're doing the function, right? Well, and yeah, because I think the way that I think about it is in terms of what I call business assets. So like, mm -hmm. for example, if you have a, you know, if you have a tested, say direct response marketing campaign where, you know, you know, your cost per acquisition, you know, your, you know, you know, you know, your client value. And so, you know, exactly how much volume you can budget for how much amount of ad spend that is a business asset. You know, if you have a standard operating procedure that can be either fed into a bot or that can be executed by, you know, by somebody who's, you know, near shore or offshore uh, in a repeatable way, that is a business asset. You know, it, it is something that has, you know, sustainable, repeatable value that you can, you know, that you can use to uh, kind of to create operational leverage in the, uh, in the organization. And in some cases, even uh, defensible via intellectual property, right? You yeah. Can patents and things like that. Like um, it, it's of true value to the, the ongoing financials. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. Well, uh, say, I think we're getting close to time. So give us a, give us a last thought or two and then, uh, then let everybody know where they can, they can connect with you on LinkedIn or wherever, uh, whatever platform you like uh, uh, you, you prefer the most. Yeah, I guess I'm most active on LinkedIn. So that's where anyone who wants to continue this conversation with me don't hesitate to reach out. But you know, it's kind of parting thoughts on, on all of this, you know, having spent my time in a variety of various industries and sizes, um, sizes of organizations. Um, there's a lot of different cultures out there. There's a lot yeah. of different that I think that the times that we've been in lately have forced people to think about and rationalize what it is that they want out of their work and how yeah. they can be and valuable. And um, I think that so much of it really comes down to how do you feel valued, right? And yeah. how do you find a culture that values the same things you do? And at any time in my in the past, had I thought that that, that I always thought that was important, but nothing made me realize it more than being home, you know? Gotcha. 
Uh, so take the time to, and, you know, know, know what's important to you and you'll, you'll find the happiness that you need either where you're at, where you end up. Um, and, and I definitely appreciate the chance to chat with you today. All right. Uh, likewise. All right. Well, Matt, you and everybody listening, have a wonderful rest of your day and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. Share it with your friends by sending them to TerminalValuePodcast.com. For more information, please visit BusinessOfLifeLLC.com for full access to Doug's products and services. All rights reserved. No part of this broadcast may be produced in any form by any means without written permission from Business of Life LLC. All trademarks and brands referred to herein are the property of their respective owners.